right here. All right, good morning. Welcome to Haven Ridge this morning. It's good to see everyone today. Uh, new faces and old faces. Vaughn's, it's a blessing to have you you all back worshiping with us. You were dearly missed the last couple of weeks, uh, as well as others who've not been able to, to be with us. So uh, welcome. It's great to be in the house of the Lord and worship with you today. A couple announcements uh, as we get started. Uh, just a, 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 to reiterate what we said last week, we are in the process of just re-signing our rent agreement uh, for, for the building, um, just dotting all the I's and crossing all the, tr- uh, the T's. Um, you know, nothing really changing there. Same graduated pay scale as what we had discussed weeks ago in our budget meeting. Um, so just keeping you up to date on that. We're still in the process of, of getting that signed and uh, agreeing to those lease terms. So uh, tonight, Women's Bible Study will meet uh, this evening at 6.30 here in the church building. You guys will be on Chapter 4. Is that right? Chapter 4? Yes, Chapter 4. Okay. Yep. <laughs> That's okay. Discipline. Okay. All right. I, I had chapter four down from last week, so I, I think that's it. But defer to the app, uh, not, not to me for sure. Uh, men's gathering will be Sunday the 28th at 630 here in the church building. Um, also, as we do every week, just take a look around, see who's not here. Um, you know, for whatever reason, you know, uh, you may know why they're not here. You may not. Uh, but do, uh, do church family members uh, 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 do service and reach out to them. Let them know, hey, we missed you today. How are you doing? How can I pray for you? Uh, just be an encouragement uh, to our church family members who are not here the, uh, today. Uh, just a reminder, be conscious of the health of others around you. Um, you know, whether you're wearing a mask or, or not, just be aware. Uh, everyone lives at different risk levels. Um, so as we're gathering together and we're worshiping, just be co- uh, cognizant of your uh, distancing conversation, you know, those around you, particularly those who are wearing masks. Uh, it's a beautiful day, so after the service, certainly make use of outside space for conversation and, uh, and fellowship and enjoying company with one another. If you or your children use the restroom during the service, please make use of any of the cleaning supplies that are in there to wipe down surfaces that you or they touch. Um, and then uh, I'm going to challenge you just our, our challenge for the year is, uh, as we've, as we've been kind of reiterating every week, what are you doing to keep, to ensure that the gospel is central in your life? Uh, and at this time, before we do our call to worship, I'm going to ask Alan to come up and give a special announcement uh, about a missionary who's headed to Africa. So, uh, just a, a little bit of a... A background or a context of this. This is the uh, only one who knows him in this room. So, well, Tina knows him. Jake and Kelly know him, and Sarah know him. This is uh, a former student of mine who was a contemporary of Jake's, 
His name is Austin Moore, and Austin Moore has had a heart for missions for many, many, many years, uh, ever since I knew him when he was a you know, 15, 16-year-old, and his heart has always been for missions, and he's always been trying to be um, uh, involved with an organization that would actually send him. Now, he's done that. He's worked with different groups that have set him up for that, and he's been all over the world. Uh, but he, I've, I've seen this develop in this young man over the years from a, from a boy to a man now. And um, uh, he's probably, I think he's 28 or 29 years old, so he's been out of youth for a while. But he has connected with a sending agency or mission agency called Surge. And uh, they're legit. They're on the up and up. They seem solid. They seem uh, to be a good organization. So he's connected with Surge, and he is raising money right now so that he can go to North, uh, to North Africa. Um, I do have the name of the specific location that he will be, but for safety measures, we cannot disclose that. So if you really want to know that, we can talk about that off camera, but he will be in North Africa. And some of the goal there is, uh, first of all, to learn uh, Arabic, Arabic, sorry, to learn Arabic when he gets there. So not an easy language. Uh, and so he's going to be working on that, learning that once he gets there. I asked him what the long-term goal was, and obviously the goal is to make disciples, and he kind of walked through some of the ways that they would do that. I can give you more information on that if you want that, but his first two years there, should he go, would be to learn that language, but also spend time interning under seasoned missionaries to do, the, to, to do what they've been doing there for a long time. And so obviously the big goal is to see people uh, respond to the gospel, and so that's their primary objective. What they do uh, in terms of creativity to get that done, um, I don't know all the details of that, but with it being a guy that I know and that I do trust, a guy who's been pursuing this for a long time and uh, would love to see this happen for him, uh, and with an agency that seems legitimate and sent to a place that obviously has a tremendous need for the gospel. Um, he has asked us if we would consider supporting him in any way. Now, we've talked to you about where we are with our funds. Uh, with what we have coming in weekly, we don't have the funds to take on a new missionary. We already support several. We don't have enough funds to take on a new missionary uh, in the way that they you typically would, you know, monthly, yearly. But Austin, I talked about the prospect of a one-time gift for him. And we do have a good bit of money sitting in the account, and we don't just want to sit on that. We understand what it's there for. We understand that we eventually want to be out of this building, and we want to move to something where we can have equity and not pay rent. Um, but, uh, but, we, but we also don't want to hoard that. We want to use it wisely when we can for, uh, for the gospel. And this is an opportunity for that. So not asking for an answer or a show of hands or anything like that right now, but what we're proposing to you all, and I haven't given a number or anything to Austin, but what we're proposing is that we send him a $500 one-time gift just to help him. He's at 63%, and he still has a couple of months to, to finish raising those funds. And so that's a drop in the bucket compared to what a lot of people can do. But for us, we feel that that's, that's fairly generous and will help him tremendously. So we're proposing that we, as a church, send him $500. And following protocol, uh, when it comes to sums of money like this, we, we want the church to be involved in this. If it were just sending him 100 bucks, we would just, okay, we'll do that. I think the church would be fine. So what we ask is you take a day or two to think through that. Uh, if you have questions for me about Austin or if you have questions about what he's going to be doing, you want some more specifics about the organization, 
You have until Wednesday. Let's go ahead and say that. Ask me. Shoot me a text. Shoot me an email. Give me a phone call. Pull me aside. Ask me questions. If I can't find the answer, if I don't have the answer, I will find the answer. And uh, if we don't hear anything from you or we feel like everything's good, we will take that as a yes from the church body, and we will send him the uh, the $500 or send it to the organization. So um, take some time to pray about that. Consider that. If you've got questions, talk to me. Alan, can you also post that on the uh, the app for the benefit of those who aren't here? That would be good, just as, as much information as we can provide, uh, again, for safety and security reasons. Well, our call to worship this morning comes from the book of Acts, chapter 17. Uh, Paul's sermon on Mars Hill. And, am I too close to this mic? I'm not sure. Nope, I'm good. Okay. <laughs> uh, Paul's sermon on Mars Hill, and I, I thought it's striking. You know, we've been preaching through the last several weeks the uh, book of John, and we're, we're discussing the resurrection, its, its centrality to the Christian faith. Um, and I thought it striking that Paul's famous sermon on Mars Hill, um, the end of his sermon is cut short by the crowd surrounding him because they're stirred because he mentions the resurrection. Uh, so I wanted to read that as our, as our call to worship this morning where Paul says, Acts 17, verse 30, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent, because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer, but others said, We shall hear you again concerning this. So Paul went out from their midst. Let's pray. Father God, may we never, never gloss over the fact that Christ was raised from the dead. As we read the scriptures, may we see that that's the crux of the narrative of scripture. That's the crux of the gospel. And we don't worship a Savior who's dead and buried and stayed there, but one who is risen and now reigning. So, Father, we come, we celebrate you through our risen Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, today. Would you be pleased to be in our midst as we worship? It's in Christ's name that I pray. Amen. Stand together, please. The poor, our 
lost in anything No gifts, no power, no wisdom But I will boast in Jesus Christ His death and resurrection Why should I gain from His reward? I cannot give an answer But this I know with all my heart His wounds have paid my ransom Why should I gain from His reward? I cannot give an answer But this I know with all my heart But this, but this I know with all my heart One more time But this I know with all my heart His wounds have paid my ransom Have a seat, kids. If you want to come up and join Pastor Austin in front of the stage. All right. Good morning. All right. As we do every week, spread out. Reach your arms out. Can you touch anybody? If you can touch anybody, you're too close. All right. Stretch out. Come on. Y'all spread out. <laughs> all right we did the best we could right <laughs> all right well, we've been going through this book big truths for young hearts by bruce weir right we've been talking big ideas about who god is right who we are being made in his image okay all right and then who jesus is what he did on the cross Okay, we've been talking a lot about the work of Jesus. Okay, what, did, what happened on the cross and what, what, did that, what did that accomplish? Okay, well, we get to today and we get to a, a big question, okay, about the resurrection of Jesus. Okay, we've been preaching through, Mr. Allen and I have been preaching through the Gospel of John. We spent several weeks on the resurrection of Jesus, okay? Um, so the New Testament writers made a big deal about the resurrection. You know, when Peter stood up in Acts at the very, and very early on, and he talked to the whole the gathering that was there, he said that all of this is happening because we, or we all bear witness to Jesus who was raised from the dead. Okay? And then later on in Acts, there's a man who's healed, and people are just amazed at this, and they're praising, the, praising Peter. And Peter's like, no, 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 listen. Jesus Christ, who was raised from the dead, he's the reason this man is healed. Okay, so the, the New Testament writers made a big deal about Jesus being raised from the dead. In fact, Paul later, he wrote to the, to the church in Corinth, and he told them, he said, look, I know you're sad because many of your church family has died, and you're, you're fearful, but don't worry, if they're in Christ, they will be raised from the dead when Jesus comes back. So he makes the argument for them not to worry. But then he argues from the negative. He said, listen, if Jesus Christ was not raised from the dead, you got a bigger problem because that means you're still in your sins. You're still stuck in your sins, and your faith is worthless. Okay, if something's worthless, how much, how much value does it have? 
Zero, nothing, right? Nothing. That's big for Paul to say that, right? He says, if Jesus Christ was not raised from the dead, your faith is worthless, okay? Now, this raises a big question for us, okay? Why were the, why were the apostles and the early Christians, why were they so convinced that if Jesus had not been raised from the dead, that Christian, that, that, that Christian faith would be a lie? Remember, we've talked about already, for those of you who, who've been here, We've talked about that Jesus died for our sins, right? That his death paid that penalty. Wouldn't it be fine if Jesus died on the cross and just stayed in the grave? No, no. So there's got to be a connection. There's got to be a, a link. You guys know what a chain is, right? Chain, uh, chains, they hold together because of links. Okay, there's got to be a link between the death of Jesus and his resurrection, and what happens with sin. Okay, so that's the question for today is, why is the resurrection so important to the Christian faith in regards to sin? What is that connection? Now, let me, I'll tell you, okay, there's the connection. The short answer here is that there's a connection between the, the penalty of sin and the power of sin. Okay, the penalty of sin and the power of sin. Okay, let me take this in two parts, real easy. Okay, remember we've talked about the last couple of weeks, I've used the illustration of somebody being put in jail for a crime, right? Okay, somebody being put in jail for a crime. That's the, the penalty, okay? If you do something wrong, you break the law, there's consequences, right? We call that, that's the penalty, okay? And the Bible's real clear. Anybody, can anybody tell me what's the penalty for sin, death exactly that's right paul says the wages of sin is death that's what our sin earns us it earns us death okay remember what god told adam in the very beginning he said when you touch the fruit from that tree what happens you die sin enters the world your relationship with god is severed is broken and you die okay so that's the that's the penalty for sin now let me ask you this if somebody is put, you know, stands on trial in a court case for something they did wrong, okay, all the evidence is right there, okay, but they're acquitted, they're, they're, they're not guilty, okay, we, we talked about that's what happens when Jesus steps in for a person who has faith in him, you're standing in that courtroom, all the evidence for your sin is against you, you're guilty, clearly guilty, Jesus steps in and says, I'm going to take that penalty, what happens to that person? Do they go to do they go to jail? Will they go to jail? They get let free. Now let me ask you a question. Let's say you were not in that court case. You weren't you weren't in that courtroom. Okay? How would you know that that person was set free? Okay, you saw them where? You weren't in the courtroom. Where might you see that person? Where? When they got out, you would see them walking around outside of the jail, right? What's the evidence that they were set free? That they're not in jail. That you saw them, right? Okay, so here's the evidence that the evidence that Jesus paid for the penalty of sin is that they is that he was resurrected. Re resurrected. The scripture calls him the firstborn from the dead, the firstborn of many brethren, many people who would believe in Jesus and also be raised from the dead because of Christ's work on the cross, 
Okay, so you see that. How do we know, how did the apostles know that Jesus' payment for sin on the cross was effective? They saw that he was raised from the dead. Do you see that? The penalty for sin is death. Okay, well, Jesus paid that penalty in full. De- the, the penalty's paid for. So Jesus steps out of the grave. You see that? That's a big deal, isn't it? If Jesus hadn't been resurrected from the dead, he'd still be paying that penalty, right? Okay, now let's talk about the power real quick. Power, sin has a lot of power. What can sin make you do? Okay, bad things like, like what? Lie. lie. Okay, I love that like four of you said lie at the same time. Parents, take note of that. <laughs> okay, lie. All right, what else? Maybe steal something. Take something that's not yours. Do harm to someone else, right? Sin has a lot of power in this life. But the greatest power that sin has is to kill you, okay? Now, that's not like make you do something bad so that you die, okay? But that's the power that sin has is to ultimately cause death, okay? Hmm? Well, that's the power of sin, that ultimately sin has the power to bring about death, okay? The penalty and the power work hand in hand, okay? The power doesn't come from something else. It comes from the nature of sin itself. That's a good question, okay? So Jesus, Jesus had a greater power over the power of sin to, to, to hold someone in the grave, Okay? That Jesus was raised from the dead. Okay, so he conquered sin's power. It's very similar to the penalty. Okay, that if Christ truly conquered sin's power completely, and sin's greatest power is death, the only way we could show that, to demonstrate it, is that Christ was raised from the dead and was alive. Okay, do you see how this completely strengthened the faith of the the apostles in the early church? And they made a huge deal about Jesus being raised from the dead. Because his resurrection from the dead was evidence that he had fully paid the penalty of sin. And that he'd conquered sin's power. That's why the author of Hebrews writes and he says, death, where's your sting? Where is Because the author of Hebrews knew Jesus had conquered it. And Jesus said, for all who believe in me, I will raise them up on the last day. They will be resurrected to a new life with me. Death will not hold them. Okay, this is why Paul could write with hope to the Corinthian church in chapter 15 and say, look, you mourn over those who have died. But you mourn with hope because they will be raised with Christ just as you will. And that's true for anyone through, throughout the ages who has faith in Christ. That, that though may, they still may die, because Christ hasn't returned yet, that they will be raised up with him on that last day when God, judge the, uh, when God judges the world in righteousness. All right, that's a big truth. I know that's a lot to swallow. Okay, but I hope that you can see how, why that, the resurrection is so crucial to, to the Christian faith. All right, well, let me pray for us. Okay, you guys can go sit down. Father God, Lord, we thank you. Thank you for these big truths and asking some hard questions of Scripture. I know, I know when I was younger, Lord, I was fearful of asking hard questions of your word. And it took me a long time into adulthood to realize 
that, uh, Father, your word can, t- can stand up against really hard questions. So, Father, I pray that we, we wouldn't be afraid to ask those. And for these young minds, Father, that they would ask questions of your word, Father, and that you would stir their hearts to seek out Jesus more and more. They would see more and more the importance of Christ and his resurrection. Oh, Lord, Father, for as Paul said, that if the resurrection is not true, then our faith is a lie. But Lord, the more we dig into your word and we see the reality of your promises fulfilled and that all of your promises come to fulfillment in Jesus in his death, burial, and most essentially his resurrection, Father. We can say the penalty of, of death or the penalty of sin is paid for in full and its power is broken because of the resurrection of Jesus. So Father, we give you praise and we give you glory, Lord. May your spirit rest on these young these young folks this morning, Father, that their hearts would be turned towards you. They would see their need for Jesus and they would put their faith in him. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, thank you guys. You can go sit down. All right, let's stand together again, if you will, please. Raise with him to 
Clouds can whisper and darkness tremble. Only a holy God. What other beauty demands such praises? What other splendor outshines the sun? What other majesty rules with justice? I come to our uh, this point in our worship uh, before the sermon we're going to pray for our missionary so let's go to the Lord in prayer Father God this is our cry at the end of the day 
come and worship a holy God. Come and worship a God who is like no other, who fashioned from nothing everything in existence, who sustains life from the smallest beetle that crawls upon the ground to solar systems beyond our own. All things are held in place and continue by your sustaining hand, Lord. Father, you have made man in your image, frail and fragile, and in need of you. And Father, sin has broken that image, caused us to turn and worship a God in our own image that better suits our own idolatrous love than you, the God who really is. And in your mercy and grace, Father, you have redeemed a people for yourself through Jesus. And this is the message that we, that we proclaim to the world around us, to come and worship you because you are worthy. Father, this is the mission that we are on locally and globally. Father, we lift up our brothers and sisters in Christ who are taking your message to the nations. Father, those who are in Ireland and Bangladesh, China, Father, whether they are physically present there or because of the coronavirus and restrictions, they are unable to do so, Father. We have word that that, that countries are opening back up, certain ones and missionaries who have been removed from their what has been their home base for so long for missions work, they are now able to return. And so, Father, as many make their way back to these countries, Father, would you strengthen them? Just continue to reaffirm your calling upon them to take the gospel to these people groups, Father, these places where the gospel so often has not yet been proclaimed. Father, would you give them courage, Lord, that whatever temporary comforts they have enjoyed while being in the state, Father, that the, the, their love for Christ and their desire to see men and women and children saved through the gospel would be stronger than any temporary comforts they might be able to enjoy. That, Father, they would be willing, as, and Father, would you do this as well, that we would each be willing to suffer for the name of Christ if it means that he would be exalted and that people would come to know him, that souls would be saved. Father, we pray, pray especially for Austin, See, seeking to go to North Africa, Father, that your grace would be upon him, provide him all things necessary in training, in education, Father, in, in financial resources, Father, everything, so many things that even we can't even think of that are necessary, certain relationships, Father, the, the opening of doors at the specific points in time when only you can orchestrate them in order for, the, in order for him to go. Lord, would each step he takes be an affirmation, Lord, that your spirit is with him, 
that you would strengthen him in his, in his faith as he seeks to take the gospel to people who desperately need it. Now, Father, as we come to a point in our service where we open your word, would our minds and our hearts be tuned to what you would say to us? Would you give Alan clarity and speech and conviction to proclaim to us what he knows is true and what you've been laying on his heart this past week? Father, you would be exalted in our midst and that we would be a people who honor the gospel well and take it out to an unbelieving world that they might see and worship Jesus. It's in Christ's precious name we pray. Amen. Jake, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stand more middle, Jake, today, and hope I do not trip over the drums. If I do, you're free to laugh. It's okay. Um, somewhere like here. All right. So if you have your Bible, you can turn to the book of John, chapter 20. John chapter 20. But before we get there... Um, just want to share a few things with you by way of introduction. Have I done something? So I want to share a few things with you by way of introduction, and that is, so you know that back about, back in last August, I went to Oregon and uh, got to do some hiking, some camping, see my, one of my best buddies out there, and it was a great, fun time. I showed you some pictures uh, of that time. But what's interesting is before I went there, my friend would always send me these pictures in order to entice me to come out to visit him. Now, you know me. I don't like to fly on planes, so one of my reasons was I am not going to sit on a, a metal tube in the air for five hours. You know, I mean, can we meet in the middle? I'll drive. And I tried to convince my wife to let me drive literally across the nation to go and visit, but it would just be just time and money that we didn't have to, 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 to use on that. So, of course, I went, and what was interesting is all of the pictures that he sent me, and I, and I, would, have, I would have sworn to you that these pictures were doctored, that somehow he had taken them through some kind of cool Photoshop process, or he went to his Instagram and he did all that stock stuff, and, and, and what I saw was kind of a fabrication or an alteration of what was real. The truth was in there somewhere, but it wasn't what I was seeing, when in fact it was. So when I get there, I start taking pictures, and I don't take the pictures with, with filters. Some of them are, are filtered for Instagram purposes. You've got to do that, right? But they don't need filters. I mean, the place was really beautiful, but I told myself... So many times when he would send me these images, I'd say, I guess I have, to, I have to be there or I have to see it in order to believe it because where do places like this exist, this side of heaven? I mean, really, you know, come on. I mean, I love South Carolina. I love the Blue Ridge Mountains and I love standing at Pretty Place and looking over. I like going at Caesar's Head and looking over, you know, those things are amazing to me. You know, I like being on Highway 11 and looking up right there at Table Rock as it just, as it sits over that that, that pond that you're not supposed to park and take pictures at. You know that bridge that you take pictures at, but you're not supposed to. I love that area there, and I see it, and it's beautiful, and I think God is majestic. He's so creative. He's so innovative. These things are fine. But none of it, quite honestly, held a candle to what I experienced firsthand in Oregon. You know, so before I went, it was, I guess you have to see it to believe it, and then I saw it, and now I believe it. 
beautiful, beautiful, beautiful place. So my question for you this morning, are you familiar with the phrase, I've got to see it to believe it? Now, maybe some of you ladies, like my wife, you say to your husbands, as my wife says to me, uh, I'll see it, I'll believe it when I see it. Maybe that's pertaining to the fact that I say, I'm going to clean up my side of the bed. Okay, I'll believe it when I see it. I've turned over a new leaf, honey. You just wait and see. I'll believe it when I see it. You know, so the list goes on and on and on. I'll get to that later. I have a honey-do list that might as well be a honey-don't list that's taped to the cabinet, okay? Really just ruins the feng shui of our kitchen, but she has it there, and it's listed there, and I think I've marked off two things, and it's been up there for months and months and months. Things like replace a picket on the fence, you know, or, or paint one wall in the bathroom that would literally take me the time of taking down the two light sconces and then putting a single coat, you know. I mean, it would take no time, but it's just so hard for me to get to some of these things. I mean, this is a great time for some of you men to really empathize with me right now, but you're silent, you jerks. So that's, that's how that is. But I understand the phrase and the underst- I, I get it. I'll, I'll believe it when I see it. And I started thinking of these things when I started reading through this text for this week because Thomas became a man who had to see something in order to believe it. But Thomas took it a step further. Not only did he have to see it to believe it, but he had to behold it. He had to touch it. He had to experience it with the senses in order to believe it. So if you're looking with me, we're in John chapter 20, starting in verse 24. And think of the phrase, I've got to see it to believe it, when we think of Thomas here. Now, Thomas, one of the 12 who was called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So again, this first time when Jesus entered the room and he, you know, appeared beyond the door, uh, Thomas was not with them on that day, the day that the disciples all encountered Jesus, a risen Christ, and they're all believing now, and it just really worked them over. Thomas wasn't a part of that. There were only 10 that were gathered that day. So we're missing who? Thomas, and we're missing Paul later. So you have 10 that are there that day. So here we have this occasion where now Thomas is in the room with them. And it says, Thomas was one of the 12, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see his hands and the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails... Uh, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. So here we are again, the same type of encounter that happened just moments ago, or or days ago, but moments ago in terms of uh, proximity in the verses. Thomas answered him, then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So we'll look at this uh, a bit more in detail in a moment, but just consider the fact that Thomas goes in here. And Thomas is unbelieving at this point. Thomas is really struggling for various reasons, which we'll see, I believe. And then Jesus enters the room, not owing him a shred of grace. He responds or acquiesces to Thomas's conditions that Thomas himself placed on his own faith. And Jesus says, Thomas, see my hands and see my side. Don't just see them. Put your hands there. 
and touch them and experience it for yourself. Jesus didn't owe Thomas that grace. He did not owe Thomas that measure. But in that moment, that's what Thomas felt that he needed. And Jesus, in his love and grace, forbearance and all these other things, he honored the wishes of Thomas so that Thomas might believe. And we know that Thomas did believe because his response was a declaration of the full deity of Christ. He says, my Lord and my God. So my objective today is this. I want to provide a reminder that God has left us with all that we need for a robust faith and practice. God has left us with all that we need for a robust faith and practice. Is that not what we talk about all the time? We want a robust faith. We want a faith that is stronger. We want a faith that can stand the test of time and whatever it takes to get that, that's what I want. That's how I pray. I want that. Sometimes my faith is weak. I can identify with the Thomases and the Simon Peters of Scripture who get out of the boat and sink or refuse to believe even though the disciples labored to convince him on an eyewitness account that Jesus is in fact alive. You say, what kind of man would have lived under the teachings of Jesus for so many years and heard these promises and now he's hearing account from his brothers who he's labored with and he's still not believing. But even more so, what kind of man would then respond to that kind of man and alleviate his doubt and thus provide him with belief? And that man is Jesus. So my outline today is we're going to see three things. First of all, there's an example that's provided in the text. There's an exhortation. And then there's a blessing that's provided in the text. So we'll start again in verse 24. Thomas, one of the twelve called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. So the example is this. I believe that we can walk away from this text and see that there is an economy of grace that is expressed here amongst the disciples. And you may ask, well, how do you, how do you get that? I get that because when it says that these disciples told Thomas, the, the, the verb that is used there is indicating that they continued to tell him the truth. That they were continuously presenting him with this. It wasn't just, hey, I've seen this. I've seen Jesus. He's alive. Oh, you don't believe? Well, let's move on. Let's save our breath because you're not believing. No, it was, Thomas, we've seen a risen Christ. I don't, I don't believe it. Thomas, we've seen it. We, he was here. I mean, you, you put yourself in that situation. Put yourself in that context for just a moment because we're not trying to remove the context and bring it here. We're trying to exist in that moment. What is it meant for? What is it teaching us? What are we gaining from, from, from trying to enter into this 21st century or this, this first century context? You see these disciples who are finally believing that Jesus has been resurrected. He's alive. You have to agree. There's got to be some excitement and some hope that has been lit under them. And so Thomas comes in because he wasn't there when Jesus first appeared to them. And now he's there and they're saying, he was here. I promise you, we saw it. We spoke with him. We gave him broiled fish, man. He was right there. He ate the fish. It wasn't a figment of our imagination. We're not hallucinating. This was real. They labored to tell him this. They labored to convince him of this. And you would too. 
you've done the similar thing in your life in the past with, with, with truths that are much less significant. Maybe you were out and you saw a shooting star and your wife just didn't see it or your husband didn't see it or your kids didn't see it or whoever you're talking to didn't see it. And you're like, I promise I saw it. It was right there, man. It just shot right across the, 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 the sky. And you believe it. And you're like, I promise you I saw it. I mean, where do you think... Where do you think I cross my heart and hope to die? Where do you think the pinky promises, where do you think all of these promises and swears and all of this stuff from childhood were born out of? It's born out of people being so convinced of something that they want to convince you of the same thing that they're convinced of. And we do this all the time. We do this all the time. I'm always trying to convince my wife you know, that, uh, that I really am the cat's pajamas, right? I'm always trying to convince her of these things. I'm laboring to tell her these things. Maybe there are things at times that, that I've done and, and she might not believe me and it's a good thing. And I'm like, but I promise, but I promise I did this. Yes, I put away my clothes, but, but they're on the floor, Alan, but I put them away and I'm trying to convince her of these things. You know, it doesn't always work out in my favor, but you understand, right? You understand this burning in your, in, your, in your soul to convince somebody of something that you know is to be true. And this is the sentiment here with the disciples as they're trying to convince Thomas of what they had seen. And so there's this economy of grace. And maybe I would call this a secondary teaching or an indirect application of the text because I don't know that this is the author's primary intent. The primary intent overall is the resurrection, right? So, but if we put it under a microscope, I think we can legitimately arrive at this place where we see that they showed great grace to him in trying to convince him of these things. Yes, Jesus is alive. We want you to have the same hope in you to do the work that you're called to do, just like we're called to do a work, and we're now projected by the hope of the resurrection. So they want him to know this, and I think the same economy of grace should be shared within Christian community. I think the same thing needs to happen. I remember years ago, I was, I was, I was camping with buddies, and I woke up in the middle of the night, and as, to the best of my ability, as best as I can recall, I mean, I was so convinced that this little yearling bear was making its way up under my hammock. Austin, you were there. That was the, the year of the great raccoon tinkling all over our buddy's backpack, which was really funny. Um, he got his trail name that year. What was his trail name? Do you remember? Oh, Bandit. Bandit because the, the, the raccoon tinkled on his pack and made off with all the stuff. It was, it was really funny. But we're, we're, I woke up and said, guys, I saw a bear. Nobody believed me. Even Pastor Jowers over there, you know, a bunch of mockers and scoffers like, you didn't see anything. I'm like, there was a bear, I promise. So I held the line for years and years and years. And now that it's been 10, 15 years, I'm like, did I really see a bear? You know, I'm not quite as convinced then as I was. But that's because of those doubters sowing seeds of doubt in my mind. But I know what I saw. So you understand the sentiment. Thomas refused to believe the words of these men. They believed. They were set on it, but Thomas was not. He refused. He refused to believe these things. And here's what's interesting about unbelief. We talked about unbelief last week, but I want to I talk on it for just a moment again because we're still in this context of unbelief. Unbelief is much like a leaky roof when... Or a roof with holes in it when, when, when rain is pouring down. And this is a, a timely illustration because just a few days ago, I was at the job with Austin. And I get there, and Austin had done a, a fantastic job of weatherproofing, waterproofing a, 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 a hole that we had to tear out in a roof so that we could put some LVL beams in there. And 
I get there the next day, and it's water all over the floor. Now, I patched a hole a few weeks before, and it had a lot of rain. There was no water in the house, but I'm just saying. But I got there the other day, and there's water everywhere. I call Austin. He's at a meeting, a lead meeting, you know, the, the guys that tell you where to dig holes, those guys. So they're there, and he's, he's like, uh, man, I, what's going on? So we're kind of wigging out a little bit, and I, we dry it up. No damage is done. We figure it out. We, he ends up buying a giant house-sized tarp, and we just throw the tarp over the whole house, and now it's dry. It's all good. But what's interesting is he sealed that thing up really, really, really well. But if there's one shred of opportunity, if there's one tiny microscopic hole, water will find it. And this is kind of how unbelief works. Thomas is suffering a couple of things here, grief and fear. The disciples were hiding out. Why? Because they were afraid of the Jews. Now, I know Thomas wasn't with them in those last few verses, but I would think it's safe to assume that Thomas was also fearful of the Jews. What could the Jews do to them? What are their thought processes? Because they just saw what the Jews had done to Jesus. So it makes sense that the disciples would be fearful because of what they believed to be true, because of what they were trying to uphold. And then they see that maybe they would suffer the same fate. So I think Thomas is dealing with fear, and I think he's dealing with grief. Both fear and grief are two very strong gateways to unbelief. Of course Thomas is dealing with grief. His teacher had just died in in horrendous fashion. I wonder how many pastors, with regards to fear as a gateway to unbelief, I wonder how many pastors are considering the fact that we may be arrested one day sooner than later because we stand on truth. We post this stuff online for the world to see. I wonder how many are asking themselves, is it really worth it? Is it really true? Is it worth it to stand on the Scriptures when it inevitably offends the world around us. You see, the rubber's going to really start meeting the road for a lot of so-called believers and believers very, very soon. Very, very soon. And a lot of people are going to be asking themselves, is it true? Is it worth it? Is it worth being arrested for? Is it worth being separated from my family for? Is it worth leaving my wife alone? Is it worth dying for? And those little gateways is where unbelief starts to creep in. That fear as a gateway. Unbelief starts to creep in. But grief is another one. It's a common story to hear someone who has experienced trauma or tragedy in their life to lift their head to the heavens and say, Are you really loving? Are you really loving? I mean, not, not, not just the world around you. I mean, you could look at abortion. And you, look, you could look at all kinds of heinous things that are offenses against the holy God. What about losing a loved one? I mean, we know that that's a part of life. But still, there are times where we just can't process it. And we dare to ask a holy, sovereign, just creator, are you really fair? How's my mom? That was my dad. That was my son. That was my daughter. I mean, Wesley had a a, a, a jaw injury, and there was a, a moment of temptation 
Not that, not that it was voluntary, but an involuntary thought. I'm just being very honest with you that the enemy wants to tempt me to say, God, do you really love me that much? You know, if you're causing us parents to, to have to watch our kids suffer and be in pain. I didn't go that route, but there's a momentary, fleeting, involuntary thing that passes through my brain. Those are, those are issues of grief or fear or whatever. Those are gateways for unbelief to creep in. And this is what Thomas is going through. He's grieving the loss of his teacher. He's grieving the loss of his Lord. He's grieving the loss of Jesus. And he's also fearful of the Jews. So unbelief is creeping in. Unbelief is kind of settling and making its home in his heart. And so he's gotten to the point now that he won't believe his brothers. He won't believe their eyewitness account of, of, of days before having witnessed a risen Savior. They, he won't believe it. Thomas needed something to jerk him back to reality. He needed something to awaken that faith and belief that he needed. That maybe he had, but it was suppressed by unbelief and untruth. For him, he needed to see and he needed to touch the hands and side of Jesus. Otherwise, he just wouldn't believe. And the apostles showed him great grace. So again, I think that's, that's the example here. Is that even in moments like that, translated to our time, in our moments of doubt, our moment of fear, our moments of unbelief, we have to have this economy of grace. Christians are really quick to eat their own really quick to cast judgment really fast. And sometimes it's necessary because we are to do that amongst one another. But I think economy of grace is necessarily is necessary. I believe this text provides an opportunity for us to examine our own conduct towards one another within the church. Do we consider the experiences? Do we consider the interactions or the experiences, the personalities, and the growth of others in our interactions with one another? You pick the context. Here's an example. Has COVID, has a pandemic provided a, you know, it has provided a tremendous opportunity for us to flex those interpersonal relationships within Christian community. Despite our beliefs on the virus, despite the effectiveness or what we believe about the effectiveness of masks, the mechanics of transmission, etc. Despite all of those things that people debate over, that people divide over, are we willing to patiently bear with one another on the issue despite those differences? Are we willing to choose love? Are we willing to, for there to be an economy of grace? Austin and I don't agree on everything. Okay? But there's an economy of grace that exists between us that says, okay, that's fine because these are tertiary issues. And we don't move forward together unless we're in agreement or unless it's a non-issue enough to where we can be divided to that degree and still move forward. Usually he's right, but whatever. I think the world around us is looking for every opportunity to discredit and bring reproach against the church of God himself. But the grace and love we share with one another limits the potential for such accusations. Don't give the enemy a foothold. Don't give the world yet another reason. I told you last week that I've been called a wolf, that I've been called disgusting, that I've been called a, a worthless pastor. Well, that was this week uh, by the same exchange with an image bearer. I'm looking for a fight. I've reached out to Matt several times. How am I dealing with it? You know, <laughs> I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm calling brothers. I'm talking to folks. I'm talking to Austin. Ah, you know, you know, is it okay to, you know, no, it's, 
here's how we need to respond. And it seems like everything, no matter how diplomatic, no matter how gracious, no matter how tender, no matter how kind, no matter how much truth I shared, the angle on the other side was always and only to flip it on its head and to try to bring a reproach on Christ and discredit the church. So we need not give them any, any opportunity, which is why we got to have an economy of grace. So I think that's the example in the text. Next thing is this. There's an exhortation in the text as well. There's exhortation. At first I had a warning, and I think it can be a warning. An exhortation is more of a call to action. Okay, so I wanted to change my language up just a little bit. And it's basically this. I want to offer the exhortation, or I believe the Scripture offers an exhortation that you and I need to be very careful in the conditions that we place with regards to our faith. Because that's what Thomas did. Thomas said, listen, I've heard your story. I've heard your witness. I've heard your, your testimony of a risen Jesus. But I got news for you. I will not believe. And here it is, unless, unless I see it for myself. Unless I touch the hands. Unless I touch the side. I will not believe. So I think that's a strong exhortation for us to not place conditions on our faith. Thomas refused to believe unless he saw the eyes, unless he saw with his eyes and touched with his hands. Thomas created his own conditions for belief, which were rooted in his own experiences rather, rather than the spoken word and reality of Jesus. He knows what Jesus told them. Why didn't Thomas put together the fact that Jesus said that he would be resurrected. The disciples have the disciples have 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 uh, verified that resurrection. Why didn't why wasn't that enough? Why wasn't the promise of God enough? I mean, this is the danger of unbelief. It takes the rational and flips it on its head, and it operates on the irrational. It operates on untruth rather than truth. That's why we're in this mess that we're in. That's why Paul addresses suppressors of truth. Sexuality flipped on its head. Justice flipped on its head. Why? Because truth, which should light the way, is now suppressed and has been since Genesis 3. Thomas was leaning on an experiential belief. And this is commonplace, okay? I'm not saying experiential belief is wrong. Definitely not in all cases. We, this, is, this is very common to all of us. Give me, let me give you an example. Uh, Nathan was so gracious as to give us a... Nathan right there. He was so gracious as to give Sarah and I for our anniversary, or maybe it was a Christmas present, I don't know, uh, but it was a gift to go and eat at Hall's restaurant. If you don't know what Hall's is, okay, it is only the finest steak place probably in the known world, right? Downtown Greenville. So we think, ah, well, we're going to go eat steak. That's fine. We'll go enjoy some steak. Now, I looked online just a little bit before we went, and I saw the prices of the steak in question. And I said, there's no way that someone in their right mind is going to pay that much for that steak, or there's no way that a steak costing that much can be that good. Well, I said, I got to see it to believe it. <laughs> so I go to Hall's, and I eat what is the finest piece of beef I've ever put in my face. And I would do it again after I sell a kidney. I would do it. It is 
fantastic. I'm a believer now in the, in, in, in the, in the beef palace that is Hall's Restaurant, and it is fantastic. It is a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful thing. Why do I believe that now? Because I've experienced it. And what's crazy, this is not nearly the best beef in the known world. In Japan, they raise these cows with this beef called Wagyu. And just let me give you an example here. The choicest cut of beef for us here in the States would be from a, uh, would be from, from a, 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 a black Angus. You know what they go for at auction? $4,000. A cow in Japan that produces Wagyu beef goes for $40 thousand dollars at auction so there's a slight difference in the beef i did not have the wagyu it was offered but there was no number listed as to the cost so i stayed away from that but the but the uh, but the the prime rib the aged prime rib that i had was uh rather fantastic and so i'm a believer one other final example and we'll move forward uh i thought this was appropriate you know, the experience of childbirth. Obviously, I'm not speaking of birthing a child, but I'm speaking from a husband's perspective, a father's perspective of witnessing childbirth. I'm being careful. I'm being careful, all right? Witnessing childbirth. I'm not equating what I experienced as far as pain and suffering in any way to the woman, okay? But I will tell you this. At first, as a young 25-year-old, when Wesley is about to be born, I'm sitting there and I'm waiting, and I'm thinking, you know what? I mean, I know that women talk about how bad this is, but they've been doing it forever. So is it really? And they keep doing it. So is it really that bad? You know, I mean, I'm not trying to be insensitive, but come on. Let's, uh, let's you, know, you know, let's put our big boy pants on and, and, and let's just deal with it, right? It's a part of life. Friends, then I witnessed it. And I cannot describe to you, from my experience, the turmoil that I experienced, and I wasn't even the birther, okay? I am a believer now, experientially to a degree, of what could be the horrors, while simultaneously the beauty of children being born. It was a revolutionary experience, you know? And the next two kids, my position was right up here by her head, just saying, you're doing good, you're doing good, you're doing good. You know, not going down there. You're doing just fine. Way to go. Way to go, honey. Breathe. Yes, you can breathe. I can breathe. You're a better breather than me. You can do all things better than me because you're about to birth that, right? So this is what I experienced, so I'm a believer now because why? I witnessed it. I didn't birth a child, but I witnessed a child being born, and that's enough for me forever. We believe all kinds of things because we personally experience these things sometimes it's anecdotal at best or we believe or we perceive the things that we believe and perceive are altogether wrong because of a bad experience and you know what i'm saying there right sometimes we oh that can't be right because we had a there was a misappropriated experience or something wasn't really true to what it should be like i have a uh a friend, I don't want to disclose too much information, I have a friend who became a pastor of a church, but what he inherited was a church that had a former pastor that had had inappropriate relations with a host of women throughout the church. And so there's so many people that were, as a result of what they witnessed as members of that church, what they thought of pastors were, they're all horrible. They're all bad. 
They're all greedy. They're all inappropriate. They're all looking for this. They're all abusing power. And so he had a lot to eradicate. He had a lot to get past there. But their perception, what they experienced, determined for them their perception. And it wasn't true. What they experienced was awful. But to have it projected universally everywhere else is not right. So be careful of those things. Because sometimes our experiences cause us to believe things that we shouldn't believe. But sometimes they cause us to believe things that are right. But the point is, the experiential belief is real. So at this moment, Thomas, his belief was contingent on experience. His faith was contingent on his experience, what he could see, what he could touch. And so my question is, have you ever been guilty of this with regards to your faith? Do you ever ask God for signs and for wonders, for proof? You ever ask him for these things so that he can prove to you that he is in control or that his word is enough? Do you ever find yourself, I've done that, I've done that a ton of times. Lord, I want my faith to be stronger. Lord, I, I just want you, to, I want you to speak. I want you to do things. And here's the unfortunate thing. When I do that, I'm always asking him to do so outside of his word. I'm always asking him, you know, yeah, I've, I've got your word. And how dare I say things like that, like his word is not enough. But I've got your word, and I, and I believe your word. But Lord, I, just, I want something else. I want something more. I want something stronger. I want something more sufficient. It's kind of what I'm communicating. And how awful is that? How dare we? How dare we ever, ever assume that there's anything more that we need than what we have in the contents of Scripture? Maybe, maybe this can resonate with you. Have you ever said, please, God, show me that you're pleased with me. Show me some sign. Meanwhile, we know that God's word shows us that Jesus is the litmus test of God's eternal favor already poured upon you. Maybe you've said, God, I've reasoned with this person over the gospel. I was articulate. I was convincing. I was passionate and thoughtful. Meanwhile, God's word tells us that it, is the foolishness that will con- it was the foolishness of men that will confound the wise. It's never been about my abilities, but about the gospel's power. We forget that sometimes. Do you ever place the realities and promises of God in a mold and say it has to fit this in order for me to believe it? For Thomas, that's what he was doing. I will only believe it if it, match, if it matches this criteria. If it fits this mold, that's the only way that I'm going to believe this. So I'm not saying that what Thomas is doing is this unpardonable sin or that it's this most awful thing. I don't think it's good. Jesus is gracious in his response. And I think we can all identify with Thomas a lot. So there is, a, again, a tremendous economy of grace, you know, to be, to be experienced and to be shared here. But I don't think the way that we're intended to go is the way of Thomas here. But before we move to the final to the final point of this, I just want to highlight Jesus' response. <laughs> and it's, it's simple. I'm not going to talk much about it, but you look at verse 26 through 28, and Jesus responds in this way. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came, and he stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put your hand and, and place it in my side. Do you not disbelieve? Or do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus didn't chide him. Jesus didn't rebuke him. He didn't say, man, you know what? Why are you here after three years of me teaching you? 
the best preacher, communicator, theologian in the known world, the eternal Son of God, has taught you and has shared intimate quarters with you in terms of his discipleship, and still you don't believe. This is not how Jesus approached the scene. He approaches the scene with grace and responds by saying, here, Thomas. He didn't just say, look. He acquiesces to Thomas's conditions. And what we're seeing here is that Jesus is showing tremendous meekness. Thomas didn't rule the roost. Thomas doesn't dictate the plans of the Lord. The Lord doesn't subject himself to the rule of man. He very graciously met the need that Thomas had. Showing meekness, mercy, and grace. And the response or the result was that Thomas believed. So Thomas created conditions for his belief. His, his and others' faith was built and based on experiences and based on senses. The experience even... Um, sorry, the experience of sight, sound, and touch. But Christ then tells the apostles that there is an even greater blessing to those who believe without the necessity of experience. So listen to the text here as we deal with this final, final section. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. This idea of blessing, this term, uh, innermost joy and hope. It's the same usage of the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are all of these people. So he's saying the same thing. If you can believe without having to see, if you can believe without these conditions, you are truly blessed. And that's the final point is this. We see a blessing in this text. It's interesting that the disciples would almost certainly look back and say, we would almost certainly look back at the disciples and say, Man, I, I, would have, I would have loved to have sat under Jesus himself. I would have loved to have been there in his physical presence. You know, we look at them, or at least I do, and say, they're the ones who are blessed. I mean, my goodness gracious. I mean, they get to witness all these things. They put their eyes on a resurrected Jesus. I would say, man, what a blessing, what a blessing. And Jesus is flipping the script, and he's saying, if you haven't seen, you're blessed. And it's weird to reconcile these things. So we ask ourselves, how do we reconcile that? How are we the ones that are blessed, as he says? Because there's a distinction here. He says, hey, you've, you believe and now you see, but blessed are those who do not see and they believe. So how do we reconcile this? And here's how. Because attached to a non-visual, non-experiential faith is the confidence in the eternal word of God. What have we been given to provide us with faith that will thrive without sight? The Word of God. We've been given the eternal Word of God. In 1517, that marked the beginning of the Protestant Reformation. Martin Luther really stirred the pot with the Catholic Church because there were some doctrines that he wholeheartedly did not believe within the Catholic Church that he thought were a gross manipulation or abandonment of the sacred text. And so he pushes back, which ignited a fire that became the Protestant Reformation, which is why we have Protestant people today, people that are not Catholic. And there's more to it than that, but... 
And in this Reformation, what was born out of that was the five solas of the Protestant Reformation. And I'm going to say them in order because I want to end with sola scriptura, but sola fide. Understand that these five solas were produced as a response to the heresies of the Catholic Church, and they marked the distinctions between the Reformers and the Roman Catholic Church. These distinctions were important. Sola fide, faith alone. This emphasized salvation as a free gift as opposed to the works based on salvation according to the Roman Catholic Church. Sola gratia, faith alone. This emphasized grace as the reason for salvation. Salvation is found because of what Christ has done, not because anything we have done. Solus Christus, Christ alone, emphasized the role of Jesus in salvation. Jesus, not the high priest, is our high priest, or Jesus, not the priest in Catholicism. Jesus is our high priest and intermediary. Soli Deo Gloria, to the glory of God alone. This emphasized the glory of God, that the glory of God was the goal of life, and it was the capstone of the five solas and the efforts of the Protestant Reformation. And that was that God would be glorified and God glorified alone. But then you come to sola scriptura, scripture alone. This was regarding authority. Luther, Calvin, these other people would say that they're not saying that there's no authorities that exist. There are authorities in this life. They're saying that scripture alone is the ruling, overarching, governing authority of all. And this emphasized the authoritative role of the Bible over the authority of the Roman Catholic Church and the Pope. Jesus leaving us to be at the right hand of the Father doesn't mean that we are left alone. What has He given us? The Holy Spirit of God and the Word of God. And I think that's why we're blessed. Because Jesus in the flesh was with the disciples for a time. Jesus told Mary, do not cling to me. Why? Because he's here in the flesh for a time. Jesus told uh, when Mary was anointing him with oil. And the disciples were like, what are we doing? We could, we could do good things with this money. We could really help the poor. We could really become humanitarians with this money. And we're, we're, we're just throwing it all out just on your feet. And he says, the poor you will always have, but you will not always have me. So it's been very clear that there's a point in time where Jesus ascends and he leaves physically the presence of his disciples. But he doesn't leave us alone. What he leaves us is something that's meant to be with us until that day. Jesus was not in a physical present sense meant to be with us physically the duration of our life. His purpose came. He completed it. He was successful and he goes back to be with his father at his right hand. But what he leaves with us is the Holy Spirit of God and the eternal word of God. Don't freak out because the Bible is being banned in certain parts of the world and deemed as hate literature. We get worked up over these things. What are we going to do if they come and take all our Bibles? What are they going to do if they have big fires in the street? They start throwing them away and it's deemed hate literature like in places of Canada and other places around the world. What are we going to do? Christians, don't miss it. If you become undone... Because you think all hope is lost because someone says, I'm going to take this from you and torch it. Then you're missing it. You're missing it. You can ban and burn a book, but you cannot eradicate the truth that it holds. This book, the Bible, is a written form of living realities. 
This is why we're instructed to hide God's word in our hearts so that we might not sin against him. Hope is not lost if I leave my Bible at home. The issue is, is it in my heart? Are the realities, the principles, the truths, are these things governing my life? And I would suggest that they can't govern your life if, they don't, if you don't know what those are. This is why Jesus said, man does not live by bread alone, but from every word that comes from the mouth of God. True life is rooted and inseparable in sola scriptura. In the word of God. Whether it's lost, stolen, burned, or banned, it will not diminish its contents or its power. I think there's a significance that we have to acknowledge when Jesus himself places a premium on the word of God. Man does not live by bread alone, but from every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus said these things. And if he's placing a premium on the, premium on the word of God, shouldn't we place the same premium on the word of God? You cannot divorce the relationship that exists between the word of God and the faith of men. We've been given God's eternal word His word that is living, that is active, that is sharper than any double-edged sword, that is profitable, that is able to correct, reprove, uh, rebuke. That's hard to say in in, in succession. We've been given this, and it's eternal. You can't take it away. You can't take it away. I think that's why, I think that's why Jesus says, you are blessed. You are blessed. If you haven't seen me and yet you believe. Why? Because you are clinging not to an experience, but to a promise and a reality that is represented all throughout the sacred text. We have an example, and the expectation is to share an economy of grace with one another. How are you doing with that? Test yourself, assess self-examine how are you interacting with one another what's the economy within this body within this fellowship like people here and people not here we're given an indirect exhortation to believe without placing conditions on our faith and then we are promised great blessings if we rest on the word of god so my prayer for you this week is that you will capitalize on the living word of god that it will supply you with your hope and your joy that it will thrust you into the war that is being waged, that it will give you confidence, that it will give you hope, that its power would be made known as you are one who proclaims that power and that truth, and that you might be able to witness that and be encouraged, and that your belief might be bolstered. Let's pray, and you'll be dismissed. Father, you've been so good to us again today in giving us these moments of, of calmness, these moments where at most there's the sweet sound of a, of, a, of a baby cooing, baby talking. Lord, that, that you've given us attention, you've given us focus. My prayer is that you would grant us allegiance. My prayer is that we would fear God and not men. I pray that for myself because I know what that's like. Even when there's no real threat, 
the butterflies in my stomach, the, the, the worry about what people will think if I say this or if I believe this or I become vocal about this. Lord, these things plague me like they do anybody else. But, Lord, I pray that I would be driven and grounded by what I know, and that is that greater are you who are in me than he that is in the world. I pray that that will drive me more than my fear of men. And I pray that anyone else here struggling with that same thing, Lord, that you would grant us what we need in terms of boldness as ambassadors. As Paul said, I was an ambassador in chains. May we have that same mentality, that we would be willing to face the chains, that we would be willing to face the gauntlet, that, gauntlet, that we would be willing to face death. Because as Paul said, because death would be much better. But Lord, if we are to remain in this flesh, if we are to remain here, may we be about the business of the gospel and be about the business of making much of you as our physical act of worship. In Jesus' name, amen. You're dismissed.